As you can see from the bulletin on the back page of the bulletin, we've entitled this morning's message, The Lord's Prayer, Part 2. But before I even go there, as I have done throughout our study in the book of John, I want to remind you again in John chapter 20 that John has outlined the purpose for that which he has given to us in the Word of God. This is no guessing game. He's made it clear. And in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, and that is also in relationship to what we are studying today. He said these words, Therefore, conclusion, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Well, that's great. But, verse 31, these have been written, including chapter 17, these have been written, why, purpose, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the Son of God. Why? And that believing, or through that faith, you might have life through his name. That has been John's whole purpose in recording the gospel. And as we have progressed to the 17th chapter, we have come to the Lord's Prayer. And as we have already have learned together as an assembly, this truly is the Lord's Prayer. This is it. It is not the prayer commonly called the Our Father that many religious circles and many people pray, and there's nothing wrong with praying it. When we talk about Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, that is not the Lord's Prayer. This is. That prayer was given by the Lord as a model of how to pray. It was never intended to be repetitious prayer as we have studied and learned it. In fact, it was in direct response to that when he said, don't pray repetitiously, that he said those words, our Father who art in heaven, and so forth. But in this particular case, in John chapter 17, we find the Lord Jesus Christ praying. And as we find him praying, this is truly his prayer. So if you want to entitle anything the Lord's Prayer, this is it. So as we come here, we are reminded that God creating man created him to enjoy all of God's presence and to be with God. But as Chris mentioned this morning, and by the way, I was marveling as I was sitting here, Peter Chatikowski, where are you, Peter? Doesn't mind me saying this. I was listening to Peter playing the guitar and watching him, and I was listening to the testimony that Chris gave and isn't it marvelous if last week he was on the roof, Peter was out on the roof in the rain, putting shingles on the roof and so forth, and to watch from different walks of life how God takes us. And here's a, a guy who's working on the roof one minute, and next thing he's on a guitar singing praise to the Lord. And all of you that have come to Christ, all different backgrounds, all different societies, some going back to Indiana, all different situations and how God uses us. It's wonderful to see how he changes a life. But though we were to enjoy men, going back to Chris's testimony, man sinned. Man basically sins, and we don't like to talk about that today. Our society, that's a no-no to talk about sin. But the reality is, we all do. We've all come short of the glory of God, and as a result, was cast out of God's presence when God intended us to enjoy his creation. And yet, because of sin, we now battle with creation. We're still to enjoy it. Even in our context we saw today, as I read, people misunderstand God's intent because it is that our joy be full. God's intent for Christian is that the Christians is that their joy would be full. 
Not that they wouldn't enjoy this life. Not that they wouldn't enjoy creation. Not that they wouldn't enjoy him. But they would have the wisdom of God and know how to truly live and understand this world, as we will see, even not this morning, but as we progress into the joy. And as we really see, I'm really looking forward to the end of this passage, where the Lord tells us really how to live in this world. How are we to be set apart? Most people, and unfortunately Christians, I've fallen into that, and sometimes you've fallen into it. We think it's by being weird or thinking it's, it's something like that. Not at all. Not at all. We'll see that when we get that far. But there is no one, there is no human being, there is no religion, there is no one that can change that situation where man had to be cast out of the presence of God to restore us back to it. We could never do enough good works. We could never do enough religion. We could never, ever satisfy that because we are all marred with sin. And yet God had promised a hope. He promised a hope in himself that he would take care of it, that he would take care of it by sending him his own redeemer, his own Messiah, his own deliverer, his own salvation in his perfect timing. And that is what has been involved, as we have seen, even in what I just read in John's accounts. In his perfect timing, he sent Christ, which is why at Christmas time, with all the plays and everything else that goes on, we understand that Emmanuel means God with us. God had to do it himself. The Messiah, the Redeemer, the Deliverer, the Savior came. Why? For sin. He didn't come for plays. He didn't come for a show. He didn't come just for history. He came because we could not pay the penalty in Christ for our sin. And Jesus Christ, as he has come into the world, and now as we've gone through this gospel account for 16 chapters, has been instructing. He first of all selected 12 men aside. And he's been teaching them for three and a half years. They have witnessed his life. They have witnessed his miracles. They have witnessed all that has gone on. By this stage, Judas Iscariot, who was referred to in our passage as the son of perdition, has betrayed, has gone to betray him. He's only a few hours away from the cross. That's where our context is. He's only hours away from his death on this earth. He has spent time since chapter 13 alone with those 12 selected, now 11. And he spent time alone with them, teaching them and instructing them. And on the way to Gethsemane, he will be leaving them shortly, as our text has indicated several times today, to return to the Father, to prepare a place for them. And it is on the way that we find this prayer in chapter 17. That is truly the Lord's Prayer. And so on the way, he's praying, and as we have already pointed out to you, it has three segments to it. Verses 1 through 5, which we have expounded through last week. And we have found out in that section he is dealing with his personal desires. And I will not repeat it. You can look at it. But in those verses, the primary point and the entire thing that he was driving at is made clear is he wanted that the Father would be glorified and he would be glorified as well. His desire from coming to earth was to make known who the Father was and that everything he did both in life and also in his death and then in his return as we closed out verse 5 last week, is that the Father would be glorified and he would receive that glory back with the Father which he had before even the world existed. But now we come to the second part. Because in verses 6 through 19, he doesn't concentrate on his personal desires any, 
anymore. And you'll notice if you jump down to verse 9, that he says now, he's still praying, but he says, I ask on their behalf. He's praying for someone else now. He's not praying for himself. But I want you to also notice, though I'll come back to it, he is not praying for everyone in the world. It's very clear from verse 9. And then when we do get to part 3, which is a couple of weeks away, several weeks away, in verse 20 you'll notice, now he does not only pray for those, whoever they are in this context, but he prays not just for them, but for those who also will believe in me through their word, whoever they are in verses 6 through 19. So he's going to pray for an additional group in the third section. So today we start part two of his prayer where he's praying for behalf of whoever they are who are not of the world and he's not praying. So the outline's pretty simple. We will deal with the first two points today. The specifics will be next week, but they're right there in your bulletin. Whom is he praying for? And why is he praying for them and not praying for others? And then, Lord willing, two weeks, by the way, next week, Mark will be with us. He's here this morning, but he's returned from Thailand, and he will be bringing the message both in the morning and the evening and giving us an update on what God is doing in Thailand next week. But this morning, we will deal with parts one and two, and then the third part of your outline, the specific petitions, will come out next, well, two weeks from today as we deal with it. So whom was Jesus praying for? Well, let me not tell you. You'll get it yourself anyway, but... Let's see how he describes it. Who is he praying for here since he's not praying for the entire world? Well, his description is found, first of all, beginning in verse 6. He says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. So the first part is he's praying for those who he has manifested your name to. They are specific men. Now, who are they? What does it mean to manifest? He has revealed. He has made known. That's what the word means. He has explained to a certain group of men who? Who the one true God is. How do we know that? We learned it. Look back to verse 3. This is eternal life. What? That they may know you. Who, I, who is you? Watch this. The only true God. And we have explained that to you. The scriptures are very clear. There is only one true God. There is only one. The word literally means genuine. There are many gods in the world. There are many religions in the world. But there is only one true God, the one spirit God. And Jesus Christ came to manifest, to explain. How would you and I know God? How would we learn about God? Well, as human beings, since we are finite and God is infinite, it would be utterly impossible for us to know an infinite being. Unless what? Unless he himself chose to reveal himself. We could play guessing games. We could let our imagination go. But it is his responsibility, if he's truly God, to reveal himself to us. And he has. One of the ways that he does that, as we know, is through creation itself. It displays the power of God. It displays the beauty of God, etc., etc. But he also spoke directly to men, but he also used Jesus Christ to explain. And that's what he's saying in verse 6. I, the one whom you've sent, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, his monogenes, his one and only, his unique son, the only one who has ever, though people will look to other gods, 
no one can claim and support it as being fully God, fully man, but this unique person. And he came to what? Reveal God. Now go with me to the passages. I, I don't mind saying this to you now, but I was fascinated by the response of reading because I actually had chapter 1, verse 3 through 14, but that was chapter 3 through 1 through 14, which was interesting to me. But at any rate, let's go to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 for a minute. Because Ephesians 1 was what I wanted, and I will get back to. But in Colossians chapter 1, as we learned part of this last week, in verses 13 through 15, for he rescued us, this was on there, from the domain of darkness, transformed us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom, in whom, what is that referring to? His son, in whom we have what? Redemption and the forgiveness of sins. We can't forgive us our sins. A rabbi cannot forgive our sins. A priest cannot forgive us our sins. A minister cannot forgive us our sins. The only one who can forgive sins is God. And the redemption, the being purchased back to the right relationship with God, only happens through the forgiveness of sins through the Son, who verse 15 is explained. He is the image, he is the impression of what? The invisible God, the one that we cannot see, the firstborn of all creation, from whom or by whom all things were created. And we dealt with that last week. So Jesus Christ came to reveal Hebrews chapter 1 and Philippians chapter 2 we also looked at. He came to reveal. So the part of the reason is for Jesus Christ to reveal the one true God who we could not know by our own intelligence alone. And he has specifically been revealing him. So whoever he's praying for is the one uh, that is the group of men, verse 6, that he has manifested or explained the one true God. And by the way, that's who everybody needs to know about. It's interesting that when Paul, and Lord willing, in the spring, will be, some of us will be going to, through the footsteps of Paul, but Paul, when he was in Greece, was able to look at those tremendous, and I've seen the remnants of them, but tremendous temples that were dedicated to gods and basically say, those are not gods. Let me tell you about the one God who's able to give you life and breath and so forth and so on. And in that famous part that's recorded, which is still recorded in the Greek, by the way, on a monument over there, he explained the one true living God that everyone needs to know. So he's manifested. He was able, how, how could he manifest? Well, I'm going to tell you something. As we learned last week, look at verse 5. The only way he could manifest or reveal the one true God was because of this in verse 5. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, watch this, with the glory which I had with you, we spoke about that last week, before the world was. He could only manifest or reveal him because he was with him. It's just like you and I. We can talk about people we know. We can tell and explain to people someone who they've never met if we've been with them. That's what Jesus Christ was able to do. He was able to explain to these men in the fullness, not who man makes out to be God in his imagination, but what, verse 3, the one true and the only true God is really like. Why? Because that's where he came from. And he was able to manifest that. He further explains who he's praying with in verse 6 by saying in the second part of it, whom you gave me out of the world. You'll notice verse 2. 
even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him. Verse 9, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me. It is the Father who gives us over to the Son. We have learned that in Scripture. He chose us, you notice this, out of the world. And that's what he says. We are all living in this world as human beings. That's being born once. Everyone that is breathing God's air has life once. We are still living in this world. What does he mean that he took them out of the world since they're still here physically? And if you noticed, though we won't get to it today, he's going to leave his apostles here. He's going to leave them here in this world. Why? This is where we're to live. This is where we've been equipped to live. Well, so what does he mean that he's taken them out of the world? They're still here physically. From the world's thinking, from the world's philosophy, so that the world might make their gods, they might make whatever, but so that they understand and have manifested the one true God. Their understanding has been opened up. They're able to think now spiritually because they have been now a new creature, uh, creation. Excuse me, let's say that again. Creation. I was thinking of two different words. Creation in Christ. They're a new creature, as it says in Scripture. That's been done. They've been taken out of the world. Still here physically, but their thinking is different. Let me just show you an example of it. Go with me to Romans chapter 1. I want you to see this quick. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God, people talk about the wrath of God, but it's revealed from heaven against all what? Ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now watch this. Who suppress or they hold down the truth in unrighteousness? Why? Watch. Because, reason, that which is known about God, it isn't secret, it's evidence. Where? I love this. Within them. That is called the conscience. Disney used to call it Jiminy Cricket. Okay? Wrong. Though I like his movies. All right? It's real. This is within us. We have a conscience. We get conviction. I just had an interesting conversation this past week with somebody. We were talking about children, and they were just frustrated with the, with the situation. And I was saying, it's no different with me. They said, what do you mean? I said, I never had to teach one of my children how to misbehave. Ever. And some of my children are in front of me right now. But I never had to. And neither do you. You've got to teach them how to behave. Why? It comes natural. But they are under conviction. You watch them sometimes. And when they do something wrong, even if you don't say anything, they're looking. You know, they're waiting for the shoe to fall. You know, I know I did something wrong. That's a conscious within them. That's what he says. Now watch. God's made it evidence by that which is within them. And then he also did it without. How? For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, and I have been to a few parts of the world, this is true. His invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen being understood by that which has been made. So they're without excuse. There isn't any place, according to Psalm 19, that you can go on this planet that you are not exposed. My sister-in-law has been to Antarctica. Even there, God's nature and power is exposed. You cannot get away from it. 
God exposes himself and manifests himself that way. He manifested in our conscience. But what does man do? Here's the thinking of the world. It's being understood by that which is made, so they're without excuse. For even though they, watch this, knew God, they did not honor him as God. Why? They didn't give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. What do they do? What does man do? Professing himself to be wise. What does he do? Becomes a fool. What does he do? He exchanges the glory of the incorruptible God. What does he make it into? An image in the form of corruptible man, like birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures, etc. And then it says that God gives them over. What I wanted you to see, that's the thinking of the world. The thinking of the world, it looks at creation. The thinking of the world, it has a conscience. However, rather than accept God for what he was revealed and looking to seek and understand him better, he changes himself into someone who's very wise and professes himself to be smart and turns the incorruptible God into that which is like a human being. And he fails. That is the thinking of the world. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's a little bit more specific here. Watch. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. This is a little uncomfortable, but watch what he says. Do you not know, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? What does that mean? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, this is kind of right to the roots, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revelers, swindlers will not inherit the kingdom of God. We're all cast out, right? Watch the next verse. Such what? Help me. Were some of you, but you've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified, declared righteous. Not that you are righteous. You've been declared righteous. You've been sanctified. You've been set apart. You've been called a saint. How is that possible? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the spirit of our God. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, what happens is these men that he's praying for are ones that he's revealed the one true God to. They are ones that have been chosen out of the world. That is, they were part of the world. That was their thinking. The Apostle Paul in Sunday school class, we looked at him. He persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. But his thinking got changed as he was brought under conviction. And so what happened, God has given them over. And that's what we're learning to learning about in chapter 17. There are other passages. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says that people are dead in the trespasses and sins as all of us had the manner of our life. But we've been called out of it. God's still given us everything to enjoy. God still wants us to research his world and enjoy everything about it. But there are those who are called out of it in the sense that their thinking is not of the world because they've come to know the one true God. They've become a new creation. And that's what, by the way, uh, you know, let me give you a simple sample of it. Go to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12. What does it look like? What does it look like in the real world? Well... He doesn't leave that to our imagination. Watch. I will get down to Romans chapter 12, just verse 2, and then highlight a couple of other things. Do not be conformed to this world, but watch this. You know, these are the two, these, this is the true transformers, not those movies, okay? 
The true transformers are right here. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing, where? Of your mind. Why? So that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. What does that look like, though? How about verse 9? Love without hypocrisy. Abhor evil. Cling to that which is good. He goes on and on. Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless, don't curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Be of the same mind ones toward another. Never pay evil for evil. Verse 17. And on and on it goes. Never take your own revenge. That's what it looks like. How does that happen? Well, I won't speak for Pastor Chris, but I know prior to my coming to Christ, I can tell you what would happen when people got at me. I looked for revenge. Absolutely. I never turned another cheek. I looked to give back. And so forth. Why does that change? Because our thinking has changed. Why does that happen through God? So he's praying for who? Those who he's revealed himself to, those who he's called out of the world, and those that are kept by the Father. Go back to chapter 17, again in verse 6. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So they keep the word. God has sovereignly selected them. God has sovereignly given them to Christ, yes, but they also have responsibility. Folks, you can't get away from this. With all the theological debates that go on over and over again, it is pretty simple in this passage alone that there was still the responsibility of belief. There's call to obedience. And it says right here in verse 6, these are they who have kept the word. They haven't just heard it. There's many people who have heard the Bible. There's many people that have read the Bible. But they don't keep it. They don't believe it. They don't commit themselves to it. We'll come back to that word belief in a minute. It was Peter that said, and who's he talking to? Obviously, you can see the men that he's talking about and that he's praying for are his apostles. They are the ones that he called out. They are the ones that he manifested himself. Yes, disciples, but if you go back since chapter 13, he's been with the 11. And he's primarily praying for them. Secondarily, any other disciples, but the ones that are with him, with him are the 11. And they've believed. Peter said, you are the Christ. He says, my father revealed that to you. It was his apostles that understood that he was the light of the world, that they went forth. They understood that he was the way, the truth, and the life. So who is he praying for? Those who he has manifested himself to, those who have responded to the word of God and have kept it. Now, how have they responded? Look at verse 8. And by the way, he gets into, now they have come to know that everything that you have given to me is from you. They've begun to understand the relationship of the Father and the Son. But look at verse 8. Three things are mentioned. For the words which you gave me, now watch, I have given to them, okay? Now what about them? They received them, number one. Many did not. They received the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. He came on the scene and said, I'm the Christ. He came on the scene and said, I am the one who the Father sent. I am the one who was able to talk, John chapter 8, and say, you are of your father the devil. If you were truly of God, you would have believed me. So number one, they received the words of God. And by the way, there are 
still that condition today. There are many who do not receive what Jesus has to say. Oh, they might have the Jesus of their own imagination, a moral man, a good man. But you remember what the Lord had the Father say about him? This is my son. Receive him. This is my son. Follow him. This is my son whom I am well pleased with. This is the one that I have sent. Not too many want to receive that. These men had received it. Not only had they received it, but also, notice verse 8, they had understood it. He says they received it, they received them, and truly understood what? The words. They understood when Jesus said he was the Christ. There were times they didn't understand some things, and Jesus had to explain it to them, and he used parables. There are some that maybe even receive a message and hear it, but they really don't comprehend it. They don't comprehend that Jesus came from the Father or who he really is. Remember we talked last week? There are people that have a Jesus, but it's not the Jesus of the Bible. You need to understand who the Jesus of the Bible is. That's the one that the Father sent, not the one of man's imagination. So they received it, they understood it, and then obviously you have the faith, verse 8. The third thing is they believed it. Notice it. They understood that I came from you. Notice that? They didn't just understand words about Jesus. They understood that he came forth from the Father. They understood what? Verse 5. That I'm coming back to your Father with the glory which I had before the world was. There are not a lot of people. Listen, while there's a lot of professing Christians, there are not a lot who truly believe that Jesus Christ came from eternity past, and it was God in the flesh that came. But the only Jesus that saves is that one. And that's what he's saying. They truly have understood that when I came, I was different from all the other people. That when I came, I came from you. That you were the one that sent me. That's what he's been dealing with in verse 5. Uh, and, and so forth before this. And he manifested the Father to them. He, he, they were taken out of the world. They began to receive what Jesus gave to them. Remember, he said, come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. They later understood what that meant, and they believed that truly he was. That's why Peter came to the point of, who do men say that I am? Well, some say you're Moses. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're this. John the Baptist back from the dead. Who do you say that I am? You're the Christ. The son of the living God. Remember what I started with? His purpose of even writing this prayer was so that people would understand that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And by believing, they'd have life through his name. So they had heard it. They understood that he came forth from him. And notice the end of verse 8. And they believed it. Believed what? That you sent me. It wasn't just a superficial belief. You've heard me say this before. One of the most frightening passages of Scripture is found in Matthew chapter 7. What is that? Many will come to me in that day. How many? Many. I don't know what that number is, but it's not few. And many will come to me in that day and say, 
Didn't we do many wonderful things in your name? Didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? And what will Jesus say to them? Frightening. Depart from me, for I never knew you. You professed to know me, but you didn't know me. You were doing things basically of your own initiative. And he's talking about these men who truly did know him. And they understood who truly Jesus was, not the Jesus of their imagination, but the true Jesus that was sent by God. And the frightening part about that passage is he's depart from me into iniquity. I never knew you. They will be relying on their own good works, miracles, etc., etc., and he will say, I never knew you. What a frightening passage that is. Those who one day thought they were going to heaven and found out they didn't because they truly didn't believe and have faith in the one true Jesus of the Bible. These men had that. That's why he distinguishes them in verse 12 or 13. 12. He says, there's only one that will perish. It's the son of perdition. The other 11 truly knew it and understood it. Judas had all the benefits. He had experienced all the miracles. He had all the teaching. And what's really frightening, he was apparently given the ability even to perform the miracles. And he still didn't believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. But the 11 did. And so he's praying for them. They had the faith. And since chapter 13, verse 1, where he referred to the disciples, he's talking primarily of the 11 disciples. So whom is he praying for? He's praying for the 11. Is there a special love for them? Absolutely. Listen to me. In verse 9, when it says, I ask on their behalf, who is that now? It is the 11. Primarily that he's speaking to. Could it be some other disciples that were there? I suppose possibly on the way, but when you look at the passage from chapter 13 forward, I don't think so. I think even though the word disciples is used in chapter 13, it's evident that he's alone with the 11 or 12 before Judas left. So is it fair of God to love them in a special way? Absolutely. And he says, I don't pray on behalf of the world, but on those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And that's that unity, the relationship of the apostles. They are apostles of Christ, yes, but they belong to God the Father. They know who he is. They understand who he is. God, understand this. Does God have a love for the world? Absolutely. Does he reign? Does he allow rain to come on the just and the unjust? Yes. Does he provide good on the just and the unjust? Yes. It's everywhere evident in Scripture. But you know that? You know, for example, if you're here today and you have not truly trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, are there many ways that God blesses your life? By the way, just the very fact that you're breathing his air right now is the answer to that is yes. Does he bless you with good health? Does he bless you with even material things? Does he provide rain for you or snow or, or sunlight and so forth, just like he does for everybody else? Absolutely, yes. And he loves you that way. Why does he do that? I don't have the time this morning, but if I were to turn to Romans chapter 2, he tells you why. So that through the goodness of God, you would turn to know the one who's giving it. That's a paraphrase of it. He wants men to understand by his goodness who he is. 
but man turns away from that. It's like we deserve it. But how in the world is he able to send a special love to his disciples? By the way, Pastor Chris referred to the fact that God will never forsake us, never leave us. What a joy that is to the believer. There isn't anything that can separate you from the love of Christ. Tribulation? No. Heartache? No. Death? No. Nothing will ever separate you from that. He will never forsake you, never leave you. He has a special love for believers. You say it's unfair. Really? Let me ask you this, those of you that are married, first of all. Do you have a special love for your spouse more than you do for your children? You had better answer that yes. <laughs> or come see me. <laughs> what about your children? Do you have a special love for your children more than you do from other people of the world? I would say you do. Of course you do. Are you unfair? No. That's all that he's expressing. He's helping you to see how much he really does love you. Do you know that it says in Matthew chapter 10 that God cares for the sparrow so much that there isn't one that drops to the ground, but he knows it? How much more does he care for you? The hairs on your head have been numbered. For some of us, it's getting fewer. Okay? But he knows all about us. Every single thing about us. And he cares for us in a special way. These men are going to, in the book of Acts, we're told, chapter 17, I believe it is, we're told that they turned the world upside down. Why? Because of the special love that God has for them and the way he was going to use them because they understood and had come to him. God is not unfair in loving them in a special way any more that you're unfair in loving your wife in a special way or your husband or your children. But he's praying for them specifically. Now let's get to the question as we close this thing. Why is he praying for them specially? I'll tell you why. First of all, he explains in verses 9 and 10 the unity that they have. They belong to Christ. They belong to the Father. Also, because they're the ones that are able to bring glory to him in verse 10. And also, why? Because they're going to remain on the earth. That's why he's praying for them. You see? Beginning of verse 11. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. That's the whole point. He's on the way. He's been praying for himself that even in the cross, he would bring glory to the Father, and he will. Now he's praying for his apostles. Why? Why pray especially for them? Because he's been training them for three and a half years. That's what I went back to. He's been letting them see his life and his miracles. And they're going to stay on the earth. He was going back to the Father to prepare a place, John chapter 14, that we studied. He was going to return to this Father, chapter 17, verse 5. But they would stay. And they needed prayer. How important it is. Think of that. How precious it was that Jesus took the time to especially pray for them. Why? Because they would remain on the earth. They would face the criticism. They would literally, many of them, all but one that we know of, get martyred. Their lives would now be on the line. Could they handle that in their own power? Absolutely not. And so Jesus prayed for them specifically. They would have been, had the Father manifested to them, they would now go out with the good news. 
And when we get that far in verse 20, you'll see he then prays for us who will believe because of their message. And then we will face what? Opposition, persecution, the world rejecting. But he will never forsake us. The preciousness of that prayer. They would spread the gospel. They would, Matthew chapter, we know it, 28, right? What were they to do? Preach the gospel and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son. That's what they would go to do. Would it be easy? No. And so he's praying for them who have re he's revealed the Father to, who belong to him, who have not only heard it, but have received it, understood it, and believed it, and now they will remain here on the earth. And in just a few short hours, when he dies, they're going to scatter, and they're going to need strength and encouragement. They're going to need to be able to persevere. And even Peter, who will deny the Lord, will have this answered for him. Because later on, he will say, yes, Lord, I love you. Yes, Lord, I love you. Yes, Lord, I love you. I failed, but I love you. How is he going to be able to recover like that, even because of this prayer right here? Jesus Christ cares for us greatly. Sometimes, let's be honest, as I wrap this up, we go through life, and when things don't turn out right, we want to quit. I've wanted to quit. When things haven't gone right, ministry hasn't gone right, when you have something that doesn't go right physically, when you have something that doesn't go right with your spouse, doesn't go right in your family, when everything seems to fall apart at work, when things, things happen, when the economy's going bad, we sometimes want to give up. But listen, God never forsakes us. He would not forsake his disciples. And next week, or two weeks, we're going to see how he prayed specifically for them and that they would be kept and how they were to relate to the world. And I'll give you a hint so you can read it on your own, but get prepared. We're not to be awed, but what gives us our strength? If we're sanctified, we're set apart by the word. How are we able to get through the trials of life when the world falls apart? I've been there at the side of people dying who have not known Christ, not known Christ, in which that's all they have hope for, and they're crying out in their deathbed. And I've been at the side of believers who have absolute full assurance that they're going to be absent from the body, present with the Lord, because they're set apart by the word of God. They know what it says, and they live by it. And their life is ordered by it. Where are you? I don't know. Where are you, individual? I'm not talking about you as a family. Every single person, by God's standards, has come short of the glory of God. And everyone will stand before him. It is appointed unto men once to die. You will not escape that, nor will I. And then comes the judgment. If God's truly God, he knows all about you. And he does. Have you trusted in Christ? You say, well, I've trusted in the God that I've invented. You're going to be judged by the one that's praying right here. The one that came into this world that God sent. And you know, when you're alone in your room and no one else knows your thoughts, you know that death is coming one day. And the only way you'll ever have assurance, I guarantee it, 
is if you've come to believe on Jesus Christ as Messiah. This is not religion. This is not your parents. This is not your uncle, your aunts, your cousins. This is a one-on-one -on -one relationship with God. Remember, what is eternal life? Look at verse 3 as I close. Eternal life is that they might know you. Who are you? The one true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That's what eternal life is. It's knowing the one true God, the only God, the genuine God, and the only one that he ever said to be sent to be a sacrifice for sin, Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Believe not on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will face the judgment. And is hell and heaven real? Yes. And not because somebody wrote a book. And at the day of your death, you'll find out it's true. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ now, and you shall be saved. Let's pray. Our Father in God, I thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ took the time to pray for even his apostles. We look up to them as great men who were able to accomplish great things. In fact, as I referred to it, they turned the world upside down. The effects of Jesus Christ coming into this world and the effects of these 11 men as they went forward has still affect us in this century, in our time, in this millennial. We still refer to the calendar. We still know that our lives are affected. We want to know the one true God. We want to know. We know that life and death is real. Father, I pray that if there be any here that did not know Christ, you can open up their understanding to see that Jesus Christ, as he's about to go to the cross in our text, came into the world to save sinners, not to condemn them, that the world through him would be saved. And I pray that they'd come to see that Jesus Christ is the one true payment for sin, that he is the Messiah, the Redeemer, and they would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. For those in this room who know Christ, I pray that you'd help us to see how precious it is that Jesus Christ cared about us so much even when he was here on earth, not just to die, but he prayed for his disciples and prayed for us because he knew that we would have our struggles and we would need your power in our life. We thank you that you don't forsake us. You never leave us. We know, Father, that we do get anxious. We know that we do get depressed. We know that we do get down. But help us to see that we can turn to you, that we cannot lean on our own understanding but acknowledge Christ in all of our ways, and you will direct our paths. And I pray that we'd rely on you, we'd turn to you, that unlike the world and its philosophies, we'll live here, we'll enjoy it, but help us, Father, to do it with a mind that's been transformed by the renewing of our mind so that we understand the things of God and live with you directing and guiding our life. We pray these things in Christ's name.